Welcome to the Disability Advocacy Hour with the Family Cafe. I'm Joe McCann. And I'm Jeremy Countryman. And we're staff members here at the Family Cafe headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida. Since 1998, the Family Cafe has been providing opportunities for individuals with disabilities and their families to connect with each other, educate themselves about Florida's service delivery system, and develop the skills to influence public policy. We believe that for communities to become more inclusive of people with disabilities, their voices need to be heard. To help make that happen, we've created this podcast, the Disability Advocacy Hour. In this podcast series, we'll examine all facets of living with a disability and the issues impacting the disability community. Please keep in mind that the Family Cafe is a thoroughly nonpartisan organization, and any thoughts or opinions shared by invited speakers, ourselves, or other participants solely represent those individuals who do not necessarily reflect the positions of the Family Cafe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another uh, session of the Disability Advocacy Hour. I'm Joe McCann. I'm here with Jeremy Countryman. Jeremy, how you doing, man? Hey, everybody. How's it going out there? How's it going, Joe? Very Excited good. Excited to be back on the podcast after a little bit of a it hiatus. Is. We were a little busy in between. Yes. The last few with our sessions for the cafe. Yeah, hopefully everybody out there got a chance to tune in yes. for our um, live stream annual family cafe. Don't forget, all that stuff is still on our website if you missed any of it. So we encourage you to go check that out if you haven't seen it the first time around. Yes. So today we are joined by... Bobby Silverstein, who is a uh, very well-known advocate in the disability community. Um, Bobby was, uh, for more than a decade, served as the staff director and chief counsel for the Senate Subcommittee on Disability Policy, which was chaired by Senator Tom Harkin. Bobby, welcome. Uh, would you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, um, I went to law school at uh, Georgetown. Uh, after that, uh, spent a little time uh, in the Department of Labor and then formed a public interest law firm that represented uh, families and children with disabilities in special ed cases. Um, and after that, um, I went to work on the House side on this subcommittee on select education where I had the opportunity to work on the early intervention program for infants and toddlers with disabilities. And that was a quite an interesting experience, trying to go from nothing to have uh, a, a major piece of legislation like that. And wow. Wow. then I went over to the Senate side where I became the, uh, staff director, as you said, um, spent decade there working on the ADA, special ed legislation, rehab, developmental disabilities, technology. And since then I've been, uh, I had a disability institute and currently I'm a partner in a law firm. And at the law firm, I do a lot of work still on disability policy issues, particularly helping state legislators. Um, uh, learn more and provide policy assistance to them on disability employment issues. Awesome. Well, as you guys out there in podcast land probably know, this is a big anniversary coming up this month here in July of 2020. Uh, it's the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And one of the reasons we wanted to have Bobby on today was because he was in the room where it happened, as Hamilton, they say in Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. firsthand uh, front row seat and a major part in sort of the 
backroom negotiations all around the ADA. So um, I think one of the things we want to talk yeah. about here at the top is just get a bit, a little bit of background about what that whole process was like and uh, what that living history of the beginning of the ADA yeah. is all about. Well, and let me ask you this, Bobby, because, you know, I, you, when you started over there, I assume, you know, had this process begun? How long, when you started in the job as the staff director, how long from that time until the bill actually passed? And just tell us a little bit about that time in history. Well, I started uh, on the Senate side around, uh, I think it was probably in 1986, uh, 87. Um, and so I had been there a little bit with uh, Senator Harkin, who was really new to um, being the uh, chairperson. Uh, the, uh, and at that point in time, the Senate was actually in control by the, by the Republicans. And he was, uh, we were in the minority at the beginning. And what happened was uh, around 1986, 87, uh, what's called the National Council on Disability, uh, which at that point has 12 Reagan appointees, uh, was looking at the issue of discrimination on the basis of disability and uh, uh, wrote a book uh, around a report around that time called Toward Independence and uh, documenting the need for a comprehensive civil rights statute for people with disabilities. And then the following year, I guess it was probably around 1987-88, they wrote another report called On the Threshold of Independence. And in it, they included actual draft language for a bill. And uh, Senator Lowe Weicker from Connecticut Gosh, yeah. um, was the chair of the committee. And uh, he was Weicker, a Republican, right? He was, Republican. he was a Republican. Yeah, that's right. Worked very closely with Harkin. And we decided on the Senate side to introduce the NCD National Council on Disability Bill. And the House, there was a companion bill that was introduced. Now, this was interesting um, because we introduced the bill uh, in the spring, I think, and uh, there was going to be a presidential election, and we were at the kind of tail end of the Congress. So why would you introduce a bill with only a few months left? And we hold, held a big hearing in September when there was a presidential election in, uh, in November. So a lot of people said, what are you doing? And there's an answer. You don't always introduce bills to get them enacted into law. Sometimes there's a different purpose. And we had one purpose and one purpose only of introducing and holding a hearing at that point in time. And that was to get the presidential candidates to talk about the need for a comprehensive civil rights statute. So the Republicans, uh, Republican advocate, disability advocates, went to the Bush campaign, said, we need to do a press release. So they do a press release. Um, it was milk toast at the beginning. And then the Democrat uh, disability advocates went to Dukakis and said, we need a press release. Look at what the Bush campaign did. And we kept upping each other. 
and eventually got very, very powerful statements on the record by both campaigns. And um, it worked. And then uh, uh, President-elect Bush in first uh, joint session of Congress mentioned the need as part of his agenda to have a omnibus comprehensive civil rights statute for people with disabilities. That's so interesting that you're kind of able to leverage the whole campaign atmosphere as a way to get your issue put forward. Yeah, it was definitely leverage. That was the idea and it, it worked. And so, um, you know what that tells me, Bobby? I mean, that you, you, you had some, I mean, this was obviously not a decision that you were making in a vacuum. So, you know, that was, that was a strategy that the senators decided, you know, that they wanted to do right as well. Is that correct? I mean, that was like a Weicker thing and a Harkin thing. I mean, they were like, hey, let's get this on a national stage. And also Tony Quello on the House side. This was House Senate, and it was absolutely a comprehensive strategy in terms of timing. Um, and, 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 and it worked. And then Weichel lost to Lieberman, as you know, and the That's Senate... Right switched from Republican control to Democratic control. So Harkin became uh, the chair of the committee and Senator Kennedy, who was chair of the full committee, Harkin was chair of the subcommittee on disability policy, um, asked Tom to uh, be the new chief sponsor of the ADA. So it really started with Lowell Weicker. Yes. It started with Weicker Harkin um, taking the NCD bill. But again, a, a little background for your listeners, which is quite interesting, is again, this is an advocacy uh, issue or strategy. Um, do you just reintroduce the NCD bill in this new Congress? And we got together with leaders, some of the leaders in the disability community and said, no, we're not gonna just reintroduce the bill. Um, there's a difference between just introducing a bill to get the presidential candidates to talk about it in theory and actually trying to move a bill. And I often ask the question to advocates, do you want a bill or do you want a law? Yeah. And if the answer is we want a law, then you use a different strategy. Um, the bill included a couple of really um, extreme positions, uh, policies, and it had gained a reputation because of these policies. Um, there was a provision that said you had to make all existing buildings um, fully accessible, and you had to, if you were an employer, provide reasonable accommodations, unless it would threaten the existence of the business. Wow. And the <laughs> bill became known as the bankruptcy bill. The bankruptcy bill. And we can't, if you're trying to make a bill into a law, who controls the dynamics of the debate? Who, who, um, can control the message becomes very critical. And we decided to 
make significant changes to the bill before it was introduced, still leaving um, room for compromise. Right. Bobby, and, can I ask you a question? Because that, that is, you're hitting on a point that is fascinating to me. And, you know, do you start with, I mean, that's a really important strategy with a lot. I've seen a lot of bills and my experience is mostly on the state level, but you know, do you start with everything or do you start with a more reasonable, exactly what you're saying about, do you want a bill or do you want yeah. a law? I've seen bills start out so aggressive that they're literally dead on arrival, that they're just never has no credibility. But on the other hand, you know, you got to have something to compromise. So that is a critical decision made at the outset of a big piece of legislation. It reminds me of what they used to say about when they wanted to raise the price of a stamp. Like they would say, they would purposely go in there and ask for twice the amount of right. raise they actually wanted yeah. because they wanted to stake the outside position as they're sort of the negotiating tactic. Yeah, but it can't be, it's got to pass a straight face test still. Well, and that's the issue. Do we have advocates who may say what in, in the disability area, the equivalent of, of have a more extreme position, but when you're introducing a bill and you're the senators and members of the house, you've got to be able to control the message. And if it's too extreme, the other side, you're, you're leading with your chin and the other side um, has the advantage. So we had to figure out that balance as one of those initial issues and convince the disability community outside of Washington that this was a good strategy. Well, that's interesting because you know that's something I think that we see coming up uh, on a lot of advocacy issues, not just within disability, but beyond that as well. You know, what was that conversation like between the advocacy community and the people that were sort of trying to do the legislative work? How did that tension get managed? Was it sort of something that was cooperative or was it tense? Well, here's what we did. Um, this, the ADA was not Harkin's bill or Weicker's bill or Quello's bill. Right. It was the disability community's bill but you've got a broad disability community. Mm -hmm. We had the sophisticated lobbyists, Pat Wright from the Disability Rights Education Defense Fund was known as the general. We talked to her and she came to us and we went to, I don't remember who came to who, but we had these long conversations and, um, and she and others in Washington said, we have to change this bill. Um, so they were part of the discussion, but what um, Senator Kennedy's staff and I did, uh, Carolyn Oselenik, we prepared a hundred questions for the disability community saying, we're going to have a bill. We know we're going to be hit hard by having a comprehensive bill like this. We need answers to those questions. So we put in a notebook, 100 questions. It took a month or two to get responses. We were comfortable. Then we started the drafting process, redrafting process um, with some of the reps from the disability community. But when we had the, a draft bill, that's when we went out to some of the grassroots groups like ADAPT and the National Council on Independent Living and Independent Living Centers. And they were pissed off, to be quite frank, that we were compromising. But Carol and I spent two and three hours um, talking with representatives. And 
you know, you can't see because this is a podcast, but I still have black and blue marks from that. Yeah, company. Yeah. <laughs> um, but ultimately, we left with an absolute understanding. And part of that understanding was that they could attack us quietly because right. of what you said earlier. So there was still an extreme voice out there, but it was not reflected in the bill. Right. So you kind of gave them a sort of permission as a strategy to say, hey, if you want to go out in public and say this doesn't go far enough, we understand you have to do that. And yeah, you got exactly. Exactly. Well, and that, you know, look, at that doesn't hurt from an optical standpoint either when you're talking to the business community, which I'm sure was going to be at the table at some point after the drafting part. And, you know, look, you know, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, sometimes when nobody's really happy, you know, you know, you've got a decent product. Um, but in this case, obviously, you were trying to get the best product that you could. And, and um, where that line is, is, is that's where the rub comes in. And, and that's where the discussion and the transparency. And again, I, yes, I'm a staff person for a senator, but we needed to have absolute buy-in from yeah. the leaders of the disability community. This was their bill. Bobby, what was the, was there an issue? Well, let me ask you this. How much did it change from what, once you had, you know, sort of decided draft, you know, and outside of the things that you thought you were going to have to give? I mean, you can usually predict with some level of certainty. How much did that look like your end product? It looked exactly yeah. like the end product we expected. And we compromised where we knew we, we would have to compromise. And, um, and uh, in the transportation area, it took a lot longer. And in fact, it was on the house, house side where a lot of the transportation um, provisions were included. Civil rights statutes usually say don't discriminate um, and have five examples of definitions of what discrimination is. The transportation section of the bill was 20, 30 pages long. It looked more like a typical authorizing legislation than a civil rights statute. And that had to be worked out on the House side. That's interesting because, you know, just as a quick aside, when we go and talk to people in the community about what some of the most pressing disability issues are, transportation comes out every time. Absolutely. So it's like, no wonder that section was so big. Here we are 30 years later, later and one of the things disability advocates are always clamoring for is better transportation options. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're saying too, which is an interesting dynamic that I really never thought of and it's kind of stupid on my part, but it's like in a civil rights statute is not usually exact language explaining how you are no longer going to discriminate. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't, you don't, you know, you say you just, you can't, but in this particular instance, and the way you're not going to be able to is you're going to have to have a lift on buses. You're going to have right. to have a ramp in front of buildings. I mean, that's unique. And when, and again, you've got subway systems, are you going to re require a gazillion dollars to retrofit every uh, subway, or are you going to do something less and or, or nothing with respect there? And we had, all that had to be figured out. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess, you know, it kind of puts me in mind, I know a lot of people out there have seen that movie, uh, Crip Camp, and are a little bit familiar with the story of you know, the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, you know, to go back in time a little bit from the ADA, but it wasn't the act passing itself that was the big battle. It was the 
the 504 regulations and sort of the details of what exactly all these things meant and what the regulations were going to be in practice. And I guess that's, it's, a, it, it's implementation. Yeah. yeah, that's that's oftentimes the biggest hurdle. Yeah. Bobby, let me ask you, was there any part of this that you were disappointed with? Like, was there anything that was left on the table or taken off that uh, broke your heart or, you know, what, what what was 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 there anything like that? N nothing that broke nothing that broke my heart um, at all. Um, we had some close calls, uh, really. Uh, but tell us about that. Tell give us a couple. Of, give us an example of that. Like in a committee meeting, you mean? Or well, um, I'll I'll go to uh, the most extreme um, thing that almost happened. Um, we had the house the senate went first and it passed its version of the bill that basically said do not discriminate treat people based on facts objective evidence and science and the house passed its version said treat people based on objective evidence uh, facts and science except if you're hiv positive and you're a food handler and then it's perfectly acceptable to treat people based on fear, ignorance, and prejudice. That's kind of, in a wow. person's terms, what the House provision did. And um, then we had, you go into conference, as you know, because only bills that are identically passed in the House and the Senate go to the president. And there's a motion to instruct the Senate conferees by Jesse Carolina saying, take the House provision. And then we had to try to make sure that motion to instruct, instruct and Kennedy and Harkin went to President Reagan's personal physician, got a statement, went to Admiral Watkins, uh, who was chair of the AIDS commission, went to all the public health officials, got the best talking points you could imagine. We went to the floor and lost wow. about 65 to 35, the motion to but fortunately, it's only, you don't have to accept it. And Orrin Hatcher, conservative Republican from Utah, voted with Jesse Helms. Somebody went to Orrin Hatch, that somebody happened to have been me, and found <laughs> him by himself on the third sub floor in the US Senate. And we had a heart to heart conversation. And basically it was, Senator Hatch, you are a champion of civil rights. We're not going to pass a civil rights statute that built in discrimination. The disability community had conversations amongst themselves, and they said, we're going to kill the bill rather than have built in discrimination. And I said, uh, Senator Hatch, you are also a champion of science. Can't we figure something out based on science? So he thought about it and called his uh, health LA, Nancy Taylor, who's pregnant with twins, got her out of bed, came to, into DC, um, negotiated with Senator Kennedy's staff language, which said, treat people based on facts, objective evidence, and science, and let the Secretary of Health and Human Services with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention decide the science. And that was the amendment. And we put that in the conference report. 
uh, Senator Hatch was saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to say in defense of this? And we said, here, take our talking points, Harkin and Kennedy. <laughs> you have everything you need. And this time he led the debate on this issue, and this time we won. Wow. And the moral of that story is sometimes who is the leader, who is the messenger, who is the champion that controls who wins or loses. Same substantive arguments. This time a conservative Republican was leading the charge and this time we won. So that was the biggest issue because that was so big that uh, we might never have had an ADA. Right, if that didn't get resolved. Yeah, yeah I guess it's kind of easy to forget that, um, well, you know, when we're talking about those years between 1988 and 1990, that was the height of the exactly. HIV and AIDS crisis. So that must have kind of colored everything that yeah. was going on in a way that you wouldn't kind of forget looking back three decades. And so, you know, it took incredible profile and courage for Orrin Hatch to do this. Yeah, that's for sure. And you know, it's like, and 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 we'll get to this in a in a few more minutes. But it it just goes to show you why you don't burn a bridge. I mean, Orrin Hatch was a giant of the United States Senate, so it's not like you're gonna burn that bridge. But but you know, it's amazing. And you know, if you've ever done any of this, you know, who is your biggest uh, disappointment at one moment can be your champion the next. Right. And, and I was like, I'm sure that wasn't fun to watch him vote that way, but. You know, you, you gotta you gotta keep it together because you know, if it wasn't for him, I mean, he well, well, saved it. The other thing that sticks out to me that, about that, of course, is that that was you know required a sort of degree of bipartisanship for you know you as coming from a Kennedy and Harkin going to Orrin Hatch, a Republican, and uh, you know I think part of the conversation that we were curious about is sort of the atmosphere around uh, partisanship and how you know what role the ability to have bipartisan agreement played in ADA's passage and sort of where you think we are now versus then in terms of that kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. Um, again, you, you mentioned the strategy and the need to have a strategy. Um, well, after the election and after we had a bill, the next question is what's our approach? And we figured that the core the only way we were going to get this bill through was bipartisan. So that became the overwhelming uh, approach. No matter what happened, no matter what hit the fan, we were going to remember bipartisanship, bipartisanship. Right. And there were times where things were absolutely challenged in that regard. But we had the statement from the appointees. We had the statement from the president of the United States. We had Bob Dole, the minority leader with a disability, whose first speech in Congress was about disability rights. So we had the potential to make it work and we stuck with it because we knew that we wanted to send a message to the stakeholders, the business community, the employers, state and local governments, that this bill was gonna happen. We were creating an aura of inevitability, we call right. a snowball effect, where anybody who gets in the way is gonna get crushed. So go find something else to oppose. 
Yeah. Or if you're going to get involved, which we want you to, come up with legitimate yeah. concerns. Be productive. And so bipartisanship was absolutely central. And what that means is trust. And trust between Kennedy and Harkin and Hatch and Dole. Trust with the administration, even though there were days where uh, we, we were uncertain of what the Bush administration would, would do because he has, uh, the Bush assigned Governor Sununu, his chief of staff, to lead the chart. And he was opposed, in my opinion, to the ADA. And so we had a real tension there because we had Dick Thornburg, the attorney general, who has had a son with a significant disability, who was very supportive. And you had Sununu, who was really questioning having a civil rights statute for people with disabilities. You know, I don't want to, um, I'm not going to ask you to repeat the story, but it's one of my favorites from the cafe. So to everybody listening, if you haven't watched Bobby's presentation as one of the keynotes during our live sessions, where he tells the story about being at the White House and they're kind of trying to bring his thing in for a landing, watch that because it's one of my favorite stories. And I appreciate you telling us that because that was, you know, so enlightening and such an inside view that you so rarely get. Bobby, but you've, you've identified that the HIV provision, that was a major issue. Were there any other low points in the bill? Were there any other times where you thought, oh man, you know, what, what were the, well, other than that one, which obviously was the big one, were there any other times where you thought, I'm not sure we can pull this off? Well, I wouldn't say, I, I was, see, I'm an optimist. That's my nature. So my answer to you is no, I thought we were going to get to the finish. Um, but were there difficult issues? Absolutely. Again, think about it. What do you do with existing facilities? We're asking every mom and pop store, every, every public accommodation open to, the, uh, to, to people to be accessible. What do you do? And we had sat around as, uh, with the disability community, because again, staffers were not gonna control this. The community had to feel comfortable. So we, I don't remember if it was a coming up with having a contest, but we came up with a very reasonable standard or uh, overarching policy. Existing buildings, let's have a, a modest standard. And we came up with readily achievable, easily accomplishable without much difficulty or expense. And then we had a standard for alterations, which were major. They had to be fully accessible in the new construction, clearly that way. And then we had an issue of what about really small businesses? Do you have to build an elevator? And that became uh, a big deal for Governor Sununu, who, uh, chief of staff, who was from New Hampshire. And we came up with a compromise that if there were the square footage for new construction was under X, you didn't have to have an elevator. Um, so that was an issue. Illegal use of drugs. That was a big issue at the end um, because we had other legislation making sure that illegal use of drugs was barred. So are you gonna say a drug addict is covered or not? 
Um, and so we came up with a compromise again. And the compromise was if you're a current user of illegal drugs, you're not protected by the ADA. But if you've gone through rehab and you're in rehab you, and you're being discriminated against, you are protected. So those were the kind of things that we had to deal with where we were addressing rights and balancing them with legitimate concerns. And we were brainstorming to try to always work something out that worked for all. We had an issue of religious institutions. Um, do you cover them or not? Well, we said whatever applies to other civil rights statutes applies to the ADA. We had issues about remedies. We had broad cover. We allowed not only injunctive relief, but also damages. And a lot of the other civil rights statutes for public accommodations only had injunctive relief. So we knew we were going to compromise there. And what was the compromise? Whatever you have for other civil rights statutes, whatever you have for other civil rights statutes as remedies, you'll have for people with disabilities. That's awesome. Um, so was there anything, anything at all left on the table that you, you uh, wish had become part of it or did everything pretty much get worked out like after the fact? Everything came worked out, but one of the issues that was very difficult, and I'll tell you how it resolved uh, for some, is personal assistance services. Is it or is it not a reasonable accommodation for somebody who needs personal assistance services in the workplace? Not when they're traveling, but in the workplace. And it was decided by EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that this was personal in nature. Toileting, changing, uh, helping with uh, feeding, changing clothes. This was all part, and it was not covered by the ADA. So, and that's still the case. Um, and for the federal government, uh, the Obama administration, before they left, they amended their provision for section, it's called Section 501 of the Rehab Act, which is non-discrimination and affirmative action. And they built into the affirmative action part the requirement for personal assistance services. But that's an area that we still did not include. And that was somewhat of a disappointment, but understandable. Sure. So we're, we want to talk a little bit about advocacy in general with you. And we're kind of, God, this is, we're moving really fast. I can't believe we've already been talking for 35 minutes here, just about. Um, <laughs> but uh, so give me just a quick postscript. So the bill's passed. Yeah, they passed the bill. The president signed the bill. What's that Monday like for you? Did well, you take a week off? Yeah, did you take the day <laughs> off? The, the Monday was about going to the next piece of legislation that was on the agenda for the subcommittee. But um, the, the main time for me in terms of reflection was not the signing ceremony on July 26th. It was for others, it was not for me. Um, what was for me was July 13th when we passed the conference report, when Senator Harkin um, 
went to the floor and debated the ADA using sign language, the first and last and only time that that has ever occurred in the history of the country. He actually um, debated without words at the beginning uh, as a kind of statement to his brother, Frank, who was deaf. That was, that was the awesome yeah. day. That was something that I'll never, ever, ever forget. And on the Monday, it was um, going back to work and working on the next bill. Right. It must be thing. amazing to have, you know, now 30 years down the road to kind of look around at what the world is like in terms of, you know, access and inclusion and to have that be something that you were so directly related in. Like, do you go through your day-to-day -day life and think, oh, here's a curb cut out. That reminds me of when I argued about that in 1989 or, you know, things like that. Or is that just like in the back of your head and you forgot about it? <laughs> uh, no, I definitely have never forgotten about it. And and basically the reaction is a smile on my face. That's right. That, um, I had the privilege and opportunity to work with these incredible disability rights advocates um, that um, I worked with these senators and other staffers, uh, Justin Dart Jr., um, who is the Martin Luther King Jr., the Gandhi of the disability rights movement, ha has been quoted as saying, you know, what is happiness? And his answer was my answer, which is having had the opportunity to be part of that journey, the laughter, the friendships, the conversations, that I had with the most incredible people to be have been part of that. And so my reaction is when I see um, a curb cut or or it's not the ADA, but a, a caption on a TV, which we also worked on, it's it, it just a smile comes to my face. Bobby, from a standpoint of, you know, having had a front seat to not just that particular part of history, but just for the, from the from the institution of the Senate, right? Just tell me, tell us something about what it was like dealing with, I mean, back in those days, I mean, you had some pretty serious senators walking the halls. I mean, what was this? I don't know. I don't know what to ask you. So I'm asking you like, you know, just tell us a couple of stories about some of the guys that, you know, you, you, we read about, I mean, you know, that were there for so long and are real giants of that body and, and just did a huge, and what was their relationship with each other like? I mean, it, see, that, I mean, it wasn't the partisan rancor that, you know, you hear sometimes, right? Yeah, it, that's a really terrific question. Um, and here are some kind of ways of illustrating what used to be. There is a senator from Wyoming, Alan Simpson. Oh, very, hysterical guy, yes. Very conservative, a member of Congress. Alan Simpson and Ted Kennedy every week would have a five or 10 minute radio show. And they would beat the living pejesus out of each other. <laughs> and they would just go naked. And then they walk out of the radio show laughing with their arms around each other, just respecting the heck out of each other as human beings, understanding that they wouldn't always agree. Look at the relationship between 
Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy. Couldn't be philosophically more different, but they were soulmates. They loved each other. Yeah. And that love and trust and respect translated into not only the ADA with Harkin, but the Children's Health Insurance Program, the Ryan White AIDS Program. These are Harkin, I'm sorry, Kennedy Hatch, monumental landmark pieces of legislation based on trust and respect. And you don't see those things today. Behind the scenes, I didn't mention Senator Harkin and Hatch were meeting on a regular basis before a bill was introduced um, at the beginning of that session. Remember, I talked about having to reintroduce another bill. We talked to the disability community, but Hatch and, and Harkin were saying, let's get together. Well, they couldn't get together before the bill was introduced, but they said, let's keep talking. And then we held hearings and they said, let's keep talking. And then we were waiting for the administration to come up with an official position. And Hatch said, let's not go to markup yet to Kennedy and Harkin, let's keep going. And it was that trust that resulted in ultimately the administration testified. We had a positive statement to go forward. We negotiated and then ultimately had an agreement. But it was that respect for each other that was just not, that just is not present anymore to the same extent. And, and Dole to get involved, uh, minority leader, and have his name uh, attached to, these are the things that made working on the Hill so incredible. And uh, just another story, if you want to know a little bit more about members, where not just the press releases and stuff. Please, yeah. Um, my boss, um, Tom Harkin, um, when he was told he was going to be the new chair of the subcommittee and chief sponsor of the ADA, he held a meeting with his full staff probably 20 people in a room saying, I'm gonna be the sponsor, I'm very excited about that. Well, one of the staffers who had been with him for quite a while said, Tom, Tom, remember history here. No Democratic Senator in the history of Iowa, in the entire history had ever been reelected. Be careful of what you do because this could jeopardize your chance for re-election. And Senator Harkin took his second finger and turned red and basically started screaming at that staff person saying, my brother is deaf. I understand discrimination firsthand. We are gonna do whatever is necessary politics is not going to be get in the way. I didn't get elected to get reelected. We are going to make this happen. And this is going to change history. And that's the profile and courage from Senator Harkin. Another story 
um, that's personal. Um, we're July 13th, we're ready to debate the final passage of the ADA in the Senate. We have um, a unanimous consent agreement and it was an hour of debate, 30 minutes for each side. So every minute that you're not talking, you're losing the right to talk as for the Democrats. And nine o'clock comes and Senator Kennedy is there, but Harkins, the chief sponsor and the floor manager, and you wait for the floor manager. And Kennedy keeps looking at his watch because our time is losing. And Kennedy's nowhere to be seen. I mean, sorry, Harkins nowhere to be seen. And I don't know what's going on. You know where he was? Where? He was in the gallery making sure that my family was not kicked out. Because if you know how the gallery works, you can only stay there in the gallery for a couple of minutes and then they take other people and and um, he was making sure that my family would be there mm. and giving up his time in the limelight for my family amazing and i just wow. realized that was 30 years ago today as we sit here and uh, record that you said yeah. that was july 13th right it absolutely was. Thank you for reminding me. Wow. I hate to move on from that area, my God. Um, but I do want to get a few moments in. And Bobby, thank you for that. I mean, really, thank you. That That is, you know, it's, it's so um, disheartening to listen to stories, political stories, the these days and um you know that just uh that warms my heart and i'm sure everybody who hears it and um he's quite a guy um but let me get to uh, a little bit of the advocacy part of this um just for our our folks here in the last little bit that we have um man you saw about every kind of advocacy that any human being has probably seen you've seen the desperate people coming in when they're seeing a draft and they don't like it you're seeing the people that want it to you know or just against the whole thing or people are supposed to be on your side, but they're really not. I mean, there's just all kinds of, and there's all, you know, varying levels of, of efficacy with how to do it. If there's, you know, what do you tell people in terms of effectively advocating uh, for policy right now? Like what, what are, do you have a, a handful of rules that you, you, you advise people to utilize? Start by if it's a big issue, there's got to be a coalition. You're not going to do it by yourself. And you've got to work out the leadership, the infrastructure for that uh, coalition. You have to have a strategic plan. That strategic plan has to have explicitly articulated values and principles. You're going to compromise. Compromise is the heart and soul of democracy. The issue is, are you compromising principles? or are you compromising positions? You don't compromise your principles, but there are 10 different ways to accomplish an objective. And some people come in with a position and say, that's it. Those are the people who end up probably disappointed um, because there are, there are always issues and concerns underlying those positions. We need to articulate those issues and concerns, set up a set of values and principles based on those issues and concerns. 
And uh, the other thing is personal relationships. Um, yeah. Uh, trust relationships make the difference. Um, if you're going to tell a story, um, that's fine, but it's got to be tied to the policy objective. Just a personal story that makes you feel good doesn't work. It's got to be tied to your policy objective. Yeah, it's got to be relevant. Trying to achieve. Um, and those are some of the broad uh, guiding um, principles in terms of effective advocacy. But here's something that folks don't understand. I'll give you a choice. You have an advocate, you're an advocate, you have a position, you go to members, key staffers or key members, you articulate that position and you stay to it. That's your relationship, option one. Option two, option two is a little different. Option two is you say, I've got a position. I'm going to give you whatever you need, including I'm going to articulate the other side's position too, but I'll give you an idea of what's not. Call me if you have any questions. I'm an expert on this area. So look at me as technical assistance as well as advocacy. If you have a choice between the two, Number two is so much more powerful. The, I used to tell my secretary when before I went to the Hill, if I get a call from Jack Jennings, the, the staff director on the subcommittee on elementary and secondary education, and I'm in the bathroom, you get me out of the bathroom because he may never call, he may not have the time to call me back. You're in the promised land of advocacy when the staffer or member calls you for advice right. rather than you calling them. And if you can get in that trust relationship that you're providing technical assistance and quietly suggesting alternatives or different approaches, that's the promised land for advocates, advocates not the first, the second. You know, one of the things that the people on this who are listening to this, um, you know, assuming that most of our listeners are going to be from Florida, you know, we deal on, and I just want to reiterate what you said, basically, because one of the things that we deal with on the state legislative issue is time. So we have a 60-day session every year in Florida. And you're so right, because it's just, it becomes an issue of bandwidth and time. And if, if you're somebody that is trusted and they put a personal face, I mean, these guys just get buried in information and bills and opportunities and amendments. And a lot of times, you know, you just don't know w which end is up to have somebody like that, that you've developed a relationship beforehand with. And I think a lot of the people that you're talking about, you didn't really say this, but I think, I think you understand, I understand is you're talking about staff people, a lot of, you know, high ranking staff people in DC, it's gotta be pretty hard to develop a relationship after the fact with a member of the United States Senate, but you certainly can with their staff, with the people right. that are going to be talking to them. And I tell them that all the time when they're coming to Florida, like, you know, get to know the staff person. I, I was one, I mean, a lot of people were, and you know, you're the, you're, you're the gatekeeper for information and not even like, you know, it's what they hear, not like what position. I mean, you're talking about because there's just not enough time in the day, especially in a part-time session, like we deal with on the overwhelming majority of states 
that 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 person is critical and to do it at home before you know when you can sit down and have a, and develop the relationship in an appropriate way you know when you're not rushed and you have a five minute meeting so yeah you're right to be the person that somebody calls because they know you from back home and they trust you and they know you don't have any other ulterior motive and you know the hard thing about that bobby is that sometimes you got to give information that isn't exactly helpful to your side right exactly yeah. That's what I tell people, tell the others. That's the first thing you do is, you know, like kind of lay out the foundation, the groundwork by saying what the other people are going to tell you as soon as you leave, have the opportunity. Because if you, somebody one time ever hears that something that you said and you didn't tell them the whole thing, they'll never trust you again. Let me tell you a story about that exact theme with a staffer. We were negotiating on the reauthorization of the Rehabilitation Act. And at that point in time, there was very little due process for clients built into the legislation. You kind of had to defer to the counselor. And if, if you felt that there was some issue or discrimination or, or failure, you had very little due process. So we were negotiating at a staff level with a kind of young uh, staffer for the Republican side. And I made a compelling case convincing that this person that we needed more due process. And, and we reached an agreement. And the guy said, let's go on the next issue. I said, time out, quiet. Let's not go yet. <laughs> Heads up. Some folks may be furious. The state administrators may be furious about this. And they may really go to your boss and they may make it really difficult for him and for you. Let's not reach an agreement yet. Let's have this between us. You review it, you massage it, you figure out whatever is politically necessary. And he looked at me like I was from Mars. Yeah. Because what am I doing? He just said yes, and yeah. I'm saying don't right. say yes. So you've got to understand the process, which is ongoing. I understood that if he then got creamed by his boss, because his boss got creamed, that trust relationship was history. Yeah. I had to think long term. I had to do that. So when he did get hit, he was smiling and said, thanks for the heads up. I was ready for them and I That's beat them right. up and we have a good provision now. So it turned from a problem, which would have uh, affected our relationship to a positive. I love it. That's God. That's perfect. Yeah, definitely a good lesson there. It seems like, you know, I think one of the takeaways, both from the everything you've told us about the history of the ADA passing and how that came to be and your advocacy advice as well is just, you really need to have relationships on so many levels, you know, not the relationships between the legislators across the aisle, mm -hmm. the relationships between, you know, the advocates and the staff members, and then even the relationships within the advocacy community where there are, you know, people who may be staking out positions that are, uh, you know, more extreme or different than others. Um, it seems like the center of it all, really, when you get down to it, is you have to have uh, the ability to hear people and state your case uh, while taking into account 
the full landscape of everything that's going on and really center that relationship building when you're doing that. Yeah. I, I do advocacy training around the country and I have top 10 tips. And when I come to tip number eight, uh, which is trust relationships, I basically say, um, forget everything I said for the last uh, hour and a half. Uh, if, yeah. if, if, if you're not real good at all these other tips, this is the one that makes the difference. And it's these personal relationships, um, these trust relationships that are the difference between success and failure. Um, I have one more question and we're about, you know, we're, we're, we're getting pretty close here at the top of the hour, but here's my, here's my question for you, Bobby. And I'm, it's going to take me a second, but you know, my question is basically, are we doomed? Okay. And here's why I'm asking, because, you know, as you know, nowadays, um, in this information age that we have, you know, we, we get buried in news and information that, that lifts up our preconceived notions already and tells us that the people who don't agree with us on things are, are bad and they're not just wrong, they're bad. And we all get dug in on these positions that we can't compromise on because we are so worked up uh, as to the, you know, uh, horribleness of, of, you know, the other side on this stuff uh, that, you know, it makes compromise just about impossible. I mean, everything that you've talked about here today, you know, you're focusing on compromise and the ability to work together, work bipartisan. I know you said before that you think it would be an uphill battle if it were even possible. I don't want to put words in your mouth here for the ADA to pass today. I, I probably said it would, would not <laughs> be possible. Yeah, I, I hear you. And so, you know, that being the case, I mean, I go back to my question. I mean, like what has to happen in your opinion, you know, for, for that, you know, the spirit of compromise and, and this to kind of come back? To me, the answer is leadership. Simple yeah. as that. What is the message from the top? Um, if we have a couple of minutes, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you want, man. Um, Senator Harkin became the new chair of the subcommittee. Um, Senator Harkin and I met, we uh, figured out three objectives for the subcommittee. First one was keep the disability community together. The second was keep the disability community together. And the third one was to keep the disability community together because as you know, there's all kinds of factions and infighting within the community. And we understood that. Um, the first bill that we had to deal with was the Developmental Assistance and Bill of Rights Act reauthorization. And we got recommendations from the disability community. They were 25 pages, 30 pages long. First 20 pages was the majority position. The next 10 pages were the minority position within the disability community. Hmm. Senator Harkin instructed me to tell the community that we weren't doing the Dis Developmental Disabilities Act now or ever, unless there was consensus amongst the groups. You can, and I offered to help facilitate, mediate, whatever it was. We were not doing this bill in term until we got consensus. And of course, we they went back, they came up with a consensus, 
and then the bill flew through. There was a message from the new chairman that there had to be a community that worked together that was cohesive and there was consensus. And, and that was a message. So if the message comes from the top for bipartisanship, you can go back to those situations, I believe, but it has to come from the top. Whether it's the president, whether it's the folks right. who are leading the Senate and leading the House, it's gotta come from leadership. Bobby, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. Did you have another question? Yeah, well, no. I um, just want to thank Bobby as well for taking us back uh, 30 years ago to when this landmark piece of legislation was passed. Um, we definitely value your uh, taking us on that journey in their time machine there. And we also absolutely value the advice you have for people that are out there listening right now, wondering, you know, how can I as an individual start making a difference for people in my community and you know getting the first steps toward the next landmark piece of legislation that's going to make the world even more inclusive for people with disabilities so uh thanks again for being here today we really appreciate it and if i can leave with uh, one last thought from justin dart uh junior it's get involved as if your life depended on it and it does in the lives of your friends and neighbors but get involved each in your own way. Everybody's not gonna be 24 seven, but if somebody asked you to respond to an action alert, do it. Amen. Absolutely. Bobby, thank you uh, and we appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again soon, okay? Okay, you take care. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right, thanks everybody for joining us on another episode of our Disability Advocacy Hour podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. Did you enjoy doing it? I saw you smiling. All I did. I mean, we just appreciate uh, him and, and sharing his, his thoughts with us. Absolutely. So one of the things he closed on there was a message from uh, Justin Dart, who we talk about here at Family Cafe pretty frequently, who said, you know, you need to advocate like your life depends on it. Yep. The other thing you need to do like your life depends on it is vote. So don't forget, Please. we have a primary here in Florida on August 18th. And of course, our general election is on November 3rd. Uh, the other thing we want to let you know before we sign off here is that not only are all of the live sessions from the 22nd Annual Family Cafe available on our website, but that website has now become extra fancy. So visit us at familycafe.net. You can check out our brand new website. I think you're going to like it. It's easy to navigate. It's easy to use. It's mobile friendly. It's uh, disability friendly. All those things you're looking for. Good information that's not hard to get a hold of. So do visit us online at familycafe.net. Um, and in the meantime, anytime you want to reach out to us, please do. We're always available. We're on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, yeah. we're on Instagram. We answer the phone. We, we do it all. What Whatever don't we you do? Need. Yeah. It's amazing. What don't you do? I, I do everything. Right. You, you just basically, you know, love out. <laughs> I do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. And uh, we will talk to you again soon here on the Disability Advocacy Hour podcast. Thanks, everybody.